Welcome back to another episode of the Midwest Monsters Podcast that just so happens to be available now on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever that is. Not iTunes. People still use iTunes. Uh, but uh, Apple Podcasts and now Spotify for all of our friends who are Apple-averse. So, I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I've been joined by... Professor Wagstaff. Venomous Vinny. Been joined by? Being joined by. Let's do that. <laughs> Ding dong, we're getting the party started uh, with another installment of the Monster Mash. My name, again, is Grizzly Abner. Are you sure? Maybe. <laughs> uh, let's just get right into it. Uh, my choice for the Monster Mash, and for those of you who don't know the Monster Mash, we all pick a movie, make each other watch it, something that wouldn't fit into another category, typically. And boy, do I have one for you. My choice, as Grizzly Abner was, Ken Russell's Lair of the White Worm. Professor Wagstaff here. My pick was The Wolf of Snow Hollow from 2020. Vinny here, guys. My pick was Gojira, a.k.a. Godzilla, the OG movie. All right. Sounds good. Original Godzilla. Well, we have chosen to go crazy first and talk about the film I chose. What was it, Professor? You tell me. Layer of the White Worm. Yes, directed by Ken Russell. This came out in 1988. Uh, it was also a Ken Russell screenplay taken from Bram Stoker's novel, uh, very loosely, starring Amanda Donahoe, Hugh Grant, and Peter Capaldi, who is a future Doctor Who. Yeah, how about that? Mm. <laughs> are, are you sure Kate McKinnon wouldn't in this? Man, <laughs> I can swear. I kept thinking that, too. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I... Uh, we all know that uh, that I have, have, have liked folk horror for a while before I knew it was folk horror. And uh, after watching and reading some more about folk horror, this one showed up on some lists. I like Ken Russell. I know Vinny loves Ken Russell's The Devils. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go back and listen to that episode. Uh, but uh, I enjoy Ken Russell. I think he's interesting. And so I thought, my gosh, I should check out Lair of the White Worm. And so I did. Liked it so much, decided I needed to show my wife and make sure you guys had seen it. So that we and so I watched it again for the podcast. Did your Within, wife ask if you just wanted to watch it again because all the titties? <laughs> I, I did not get that accusation. Okay. Uh, background experience with this film. Um, I had only seen it once before, um, and it was because of the Vestron collection that was pumping yes. out. They're putting out those Blu-rays for. Pretty affordable prices, and it was one that I hadn't checked out before. Uh, full disclosure, I'm not a huge Russell fan. Um, I think he's a very interesting filmmaker, but primarily the, a lot of the stuff that he makes just doesn't land in full with me. Um, but this one, I remember there just being some standout things from it, more so uh, than you might expect from a movie kind of of this ilk from that era. Yeah. There's a, there's a, some, some things that really stick to it. Well, and to your defense, when I say I like Ken Russell, 
you know, he's only got half a dozen films that the average viewer is really possibly going to enjoy. Sure. He's got a, he's got a decades long catalog, yeah. but he's only got half a dozen films that are pretty accessible to the normal, that are barely accessible to the normal audience. Right. He, he takes very specific niches and then just gets even weirder with them yeah. and really leans into kind of pushing the shock value of some of it. But even though it doesn't land fully with me, I have immense respect for him as a filmmaker. Like sure. he at least was always trying things. Yeah. Uh, just for note, for those uh, listening, the devils is probably his magnum opus. I mean, that's what everyone essentially knows him for. There's this film, which was essentially his last relevant film. Um, Altered States. I was going to say Tommy was the, huge. For The Who, yeah, he did Tommy. Uh, I do like Altered States. Altered States is a, is a good movie. Um, yeah, so that's... <laughs> oh, uh, there's one that the, the, the cover art always scared me as a kid, and I've still never watched it, but Gothic? Have yeah. you watched Gothic? Yeah. Okay. That's also Vestron, also kind of the same era. Okay. Also some of the same... <laughs> same uh, content. Yeah. So... <laughs> So, yeah, yeah Ken Russell. Uh, Vinny, your experience with this film. I don't think I've seen it, but I've certainly seen pieces of it. And I'm wondering if that's not from one of those list shows that you can find on Tubi or Shudder or something like that of movies. Uh, so I know that I've recognized certain scenes out of it, but I believe this is the first time that I watched it. You would have seen some mm-hmm. of that just briefly. They didn't spend much time on it in Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Probably. They bring it up in That's there. That's probably where I saw yeah. it then. Yeah. So, yeah, no no previous experience. Okay. Well, so this is uh, based on a real folk legend in England. Uh, this is the Dampton Worm, but the real story is the Lampton Worm. So if you want to read more about the folklore behind this and what inspired Bram Stoker. Were they worried about getting sued by the worm if they used the <laughs> yes, actual name? exactly, exactly. It's it's still down in that well, um, stewing over this. And uh, so that's fun. Check out the Lampton Worm if you like this story and learn a little bit more about the, the actual folklore, uh, which then comes up, there's a famous I say famous, there was a famous old folk song about the uh, Lambton Worm, which we get a fun song in this movie by the band at that big party that's got kind of channeling some big Pogues vibes, uh, and they do a song about the the Dampton Worm, and you can find that on iTunes, Hmm. and it's uh, it's on my Halloween mix now. (laughs) Banger. Yeah, for sure. Is it on there with that song from the Monster Club where they go... (laughs) A hundred times. <laughs> no, didn't like that one. <laughs> didn't like that one. <laughs> there were some fun bands on the Monster Club. There was. All right, so essentially, um, you've got these two sisters who have lost their parents. They live on uh, the property of this wealthy landowner who's played by Hugh Grant. Uh, he's, he's Lord Dampton. Uh, and uh, they have an archaeologist on their part of the land that they rent, which he got permission to dig on uh, just from them. And uh, he's, he's digging up stuff, right? Um, he's looking for discoveries, and he, they think he's found a dinosaur. The problem is, it's not old enough. And they're like, so what's this giant skull? And so we also should clarify that worm... It doesn't mean like, you know, we think of like night crawlers and going fishing, but worm was this old English verm, and it meant like dragon or large giant serpent snake sort of thing. Mm. And so he finds this giant skull. It's not old enough to be a dinosaur, and immediately he's kind of taken by it. Um, 
Then coincidentally, after this skull has been found, a mysterious woman returns to town who uh, is pretty interested in this skull. Um, and then uh, we pretty much jump, I mean, we just jump right into that story. There's no mm-hmm. wasted time getting to the point. Um, and so then they go to the big party that evening where you learn more about this Dampton worm. And uh, they have this festival or this party every year centered around remembering it and remembering how Hugh Grant's ancestors had killed the worm and threw it down a well. And so people come out in the big serpent-like costume and he ceremoniously takes a sword and playfully cuts them in half. And it's fun. It's a guess. What did you guys think of the setup for the film? Uh, I think that it's easy especially when you go into this knowing who the director is and seeing some familiar faces and they kind of spice up certain things with it that it's easy to get wrapped up in those things. But at its core, it's really classic, simple storytelling. Yeah. Um, yeah, Everything about this is. It doesn't seem like it necessarily when you're watching it until you really take a step back and think about kind of each act of the film and how it's laid out. Um, Yeah, it's, it's definitely... It's a good vibe to start the movie, uh, kind of that small town village feel to it. It's definitely got, you know, it's drenched in the folksy angle, even with the music and that catchy ass song. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's definitely a promising setup. It's yeah, got, it's got good mood to it. Did it catch you from the beginning? What I did, <clears throat> what I did like about it is because I, I had no idea what I was getting into. All I saw was the art, you know, before you watch it. <laughs> the cover art's wacky. And. uh I like that it's so not American. Yeah. When I first get into it, because I mean, obviously that's what we get. It's where we live. So it's I like seeing something that gives you a window, even if it's uh, stylized or whatever. Liberty's taken to another culture, and so I don't know. It's just different than the things that you that you typically watch, and so that appealed to me pretty quickly out of the gate. Was this wasn't going to be something I feel like I've watched a hundred times? Mm-hmm. For sure. So, with the arrival of this mysterious woman in town, we eventually learn that her name is Lady Sylvia, and um, she's just doing all these weird things. And it kicks off pretty big when she pops out some fangs and spits venom on a crucifix. Ah, uh, yes. That's when you know we getting wild, <laughs> right? Um, and and then. Uh, one of the sisters touches that crucifix later because this is when she I think when she went in to steal the, the skull like she found the skull knew it was there stole it spits venom on this crucifix in the sister's house where the archaeologist is staying and one of the sisters touches that crucifix and we are immediately taken to a vision which is this the most on brand Ken Russell vision I've ever seen and it's Jesus dying on the cross uh, nuns in white being uh, attacked uh and and <laughs> sexually assaulted by Roman centurions and a white worm wrapping itself around Jesus on the cross. Welcome to Lair of the White Worm. <laughs> it's pretty playful for the first 15 minutes, and then that happens, and you're like, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting into it. Which is probably a lot of the same imagery why Vinny loves the devils so much. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. Yeah, Vinny loves good sacrilegious stuff on yeah, screen. Yeah, I love it. I, I don't think it's cheap heat at all. <laughs> um, 
she, uh, Lady Sylvia's cruising around. We get this scene where she picks up a Boy Scout out in the rain. Uh, takes him home. Yeah, I was a little, was a little worrisome, uh, that scene for me. I was like, how old is this kid supposed to be? <laughs> that that, that kind of bothered me. Yep. Uh, and the his death is terrifying, kind of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's just prancing around in like these knee-high leather boots. And and he's in her her hot tub. <laughs> oh, she's she has for sure given that boy a suck off up until this point. Like <laughs> she has molested this boy at this point. And I think that's really to kind of give us this image of of just how kind of nefarious this lady Sylvia is. It is, but do you feel like the uh, it'd be viewed totally different if these were gender swapped roles? Hmm. You would have a completely different reception of this, well, and that's yeah. that's the thing about Russell sure. is Russell loves Russell wouldn't have a career in present. Day. Oh yeah, <laughs> but Russell loves to flirt with binaries and, and like blurring the line between binaries because she's taking what like even though she's like embodied femininity and like just her, her her looks and her beauty, but she's she's embodying also masculinity in the way that she is just kind of going around and doing whatever she wants to whoever she wants to right and so that's he, he loves to play with the balance of, of gender and he loves to play with the balance of like good and evil and stuff like that and so yeah you're right had those roles been reversed that you, that would have been taken an entirely different way yeah as mm-hmm. even even me watching it now had yeah. that been different i bet you my emotions would have reacted differently to it sure that's i still good, thought it was creepy don't get me wrong it's a good point because mm-hmm. i didn't even I didn't even examine it through the same lens. But now that you said it, you're you're totally right about him being young. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that mm-hmm. just because of you know. So, and yeah. if you don't mind me saying how he dies, go for it. Uh, so basically, she she bites him right, or mm-hmm. and gives him the venom, which paralyzes him. And as she's sitting there, you know, movie villain style explaining how you're going to die at this point and that you're paralyzed, you'll be fully aware of everything, but not able to move. You're about to be consumed by, you know, this creature and it's a what a what a uh, a grand uh honor. Honor it is for this to happen. But then there's a knock on the front door. And she doesn't want to get caught with this kid. So she just <laughs> he's in a hot tub. She just slowly pushes him under the water with her foot right after it's just blatantly explained to you fully aware fully conscious but can't react to anything that's terrifying poor kevin terrifying (laughs) yeah Yeah. it is yeah it's wild it is wild so i would say this whole scene right here pretty sexy yeah uh, (laughs) takes takes it to a level i don't think the rest of the movie does as far as uh, just how kind of fucked up this whole scene is. Yeah. I don't think anything... Everything else stays pretty uh, fantasy which horror film. But this scene with the underage seduction and, and that death, I think this is where it's at its most serious. It's such a good point. Movie. I agree. And I think it's really smart on Russell's part because he plants the seed. Now it's got you kind of squirming in your seat, going, oh my God, what am I tuning in for now? It's like when they show Ben Gardner's head in Jaws. 
the jump scare throws you off kilter for the rest of the movie. They barely do it. I think there's one other one when he's chumming. No other jump scares like in the same way, but it's got your mind thinking about it. And so mm-hmm. with that, there's still definitely plenty of bizarre sure. things to come, but you're right. This spot gets really grotesque and dark, mm-hmm. but it doesn't leave the movie there. It right. doesn't keep elevating that like out disgusting. Yeah, that's a good point. Whereas like the devils does. Yeah. You know, like, they just keep taking it a notch up each time. Yeah. That. But this kind of plants that seed of <clears throat> discomfort and doesn't dwell there, thankfully. Right. Right. Uh, so then uh, Hugh Grant play uh, pays Lady Sylvia a visit, and um, he goes home, and he, he has this dream about this painting, and this painting is of this cave that's going to play a role later. And let me tell you, that dream... Where he gets on the plane. It's what I think of when I think of this movie. It's totally bonkers. Yeah. You want to say a little bit more about it? Uh, just that it's... I, I don't I don't know how to, to really articulate it properly. Like, at times it's so strange. And, I mean, it's just weird as hell. But also there's elements where it's very sexy. It's very surreal. Like, parts of it, like a dream where, or a nightmare where... It, it feels very grounded and then it just keeps getting more strange. Yeah. It's just always what I think of like with the wrestling and shit with the stewardess. Like it's just all very strange, but it's always what I think of with the movie, this and the song. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so on the plane, the, the sisters who live on his property are there. Their missing parents are on the plane and it's there that he's doing a crossword while all this insane stuff is going on that he realized like the crossword is now, uh, in the shape of a worm, and he starts to put together that that maybe uh, this this cave that's in his dream, that's in the painting, that is a real place, is maybe where something bad is happen has happened, and they they have found the dad's watch in that cave, and so now Hugh Grant's character, uh, as this landlord, is like maybe I should investigate this further and so it's it's almost as ready like he's ready to go on an adventure to figure to solve this yeah the only actors that i knew from this movie going in was hugh grant and that Catherine oxenberg and i knew her from a baywatch style show i used to watch it was on like midnight on a saturday we are now entering vinnie's own strange dream called alcopoco heat And she was like, "What is happening?" One right of the now? head people was like, "Oh, it's uh, Google it, everybody. It, it's as bad as it sounds." But as a teenager, I used to watch it, so I knew who she was. And then uh, an issue I have is I don't care for Hugh Grant, so it's hard for me to get into a film with Hugh Grant in it because all I can think about is, "Hmm, you cheated on Elizabeth Hurley, huh?" <laughs> that, Someone had to say it. That wasn't good enough for you, huh? Okay. What a jerk. Yeah, so I can't relate to him. Okay, so they. <laughs> Uh, Acapulco heat. They do go to the cave mountain. Uh, one of the sisters leaves, and on as she is leaving and going through this path through the woods that everyone says is like bad juju, which is where her parents disappeared. Um, she finds Lady Sylvia in a tree wearing red, and she is seduced. <laughs> she is seduced by Lady Sylvia, and. Uh, she pretty much puts her under a spell, essentially, and, and tells her this plan that's going to happen, begins calling her Eve, uh, uh, 
the and says that the worm's name is Dianin, which is like this ancient god, which is another part of the folklore that is is there. Um, and this ancient god is mad that uh, a convent was built on the grounds where this worm lived, right? And so, uh, and then they have another vision. So here's vision number three, and uh, it's this uh, this vision of these nuns who are impaled and they're being stabbed by these pointy phallic things. They sure are. Yeah, Vinny's favorite. <laughs> yeah, favorite, love it. Favorite type this of is thing. like uh, what I summarized the beyond for you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, You're doing fine, by the I, way. I'm so nervous. Uh, <laughs> so Hugh Grant gets this master idea about how he is going to attract this ancient evil serpent. Hold a 50 out of the driver's side window. <laughs> yeah. He is going to blare snake charming music out of the windows of his estate and it will confuse the snake and draw him in. We've all had that neighbor. Mm. How about that, huh? Mm. It's pretty good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, this is where it all kind of the big crescendo comes together. Uh, we've got one, the sister who is Eve is tied up. Uh, she's going to be a sacrifice to the worm that lives in the well. Um, yeah, any thoughts before we wrap it up here? Uh, no, just other than it, it still follows right in line with what I was saying in terms of classic storytelling. It's bizarre Ken Russell, but at its core, it's it's just the the classic setup with protecting the, the village from the ancient thing that they've unearthed. Can yeah. we talk about the length of the fangs on that wonky-eyed cop? <laughs> <laughs> this man got one eye looking at Jesus and the other eye checking for rattlesnakes and yeah. has eight foot... Yeah, it's like things uh, hanging out of his mouth. Your bingo card for British comedies. <laughs> <clears throat> Who he also gets entranced. Oh, he gets entranced later by the bagpipes. Because yeah, they start playing bagpipes. Yeah, to, typical white guy to throw off the whole confusion here. Um, yeah, I got. I could just keep going on with these wacky notes, but I don't think we need to. Sure, uh, go ahead. Um, what I do love is when he plays the snake charming music that, that Lady Sylvia rises up out of a basket like a snake being charmed and like mm-hmm. the old cartoons that you used to watch, right? Yep. Uh, but And then the archaeologist takes an anti-venom just in case he's bitten by somebody, God knows who. He's figured out people are biting people and running crazy, right? Uh, but now we find out that Lady Sylvia was wearing earplugs the whole time after she heard the music first. When she kills his mongoose. Yes, right. Because the mongoose is the only natural enemy to... A venomous snake. Of course. A venomous snake. I mean, you guys knew that, of course, right? Yeah, Ricky Uh, Tommy boy. Yeah. um, The archaeologist and the sisters are in the lair of the white worm, and the... uh, uh, Now Lady Sylvia's painted blue, and uh, she's uh, she's got some sort of phallic thing strapped to her as well. Yep. <laughs> she sure does. Uh, we're going to make the sacrifice to the white worm, and then uh, the archaeologist saves the day. Uh, he, he throws Lady Sylvia into the well where the worm is coming up, and she gets eaten, and he's got a grenade hidden in his kilt, and he throws the grenade in there and blows up the worm. Kablooey. And just when you thought the film was over... Just when you thought. He's been bitten, right? But he took the serum. 
but as the film draws to a close, we find out he had taken the wrong serum. So you're saying the producers wouldn't mind a sequel? I think so. I think so. I think we got big plans for another one. It's uh, it's only been right what, for the picking. Yeah, thirty five years. I yes, mean, now's the time. Strike while it. the iron's hot. Yep. <laughs> God, who, what's the name of the guy? Bram Stoker. Get him on the horn. <laughs> uh, see if we can get this thing going. So there it is. Layer of the white worm. Thank you for coming to my book report. Nicely done. Um, yeah, it's. <sighs> I enjoyed this more with this viewing than I did the first time. Okay. Um, the first time I watched it, I was just kind of indifferent. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't think it was good or bad. I just watched it. That's kind but, of where I'm at with it. But what I picked up on this viewing is this really has the makings of a cult movie. Um, that I feel like if it gets talked about a little bit more, it, it might, it might get a little traction because, I mean, it's got like the the weirdness to it, the sexiness at times, the catchy, goofy song. I mean, there's just all of these elements that this pedophilia wasn't going to go there, but, uh, the, these elements that make it potentially a fun midnight movie, um, more so than the first time I watched it. Cause first time I was so uh, just focused on the wrestle angle of it. And don't get me wrong. This is a perfect structure for him where he can get, uh, just as perverse and, and foul, and button pushing as he wants, but at the same time, it's a little bit more lighthearted than some of the stuff that that he's really ventured into. Yeah, but it's just as weird as all the other shit that he does. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it more this time. Good. I'm not upset that I watched it, but uh, it, it didn't really land that well for me. I can't foresee myself one night going, you know what, I'm going to watch. <laughs> so, not mad that I watched it, but props props to Amanda Donahoe though. She really. She's a force in this. Oh, yeah. And I, I feel like so much of the focus on this is, oh, it's a Hugh Grant early movie. Who gives a shit about him? His performance is a dime a dozen there. Like a million yeah, performers could have done that. that. Yeah. But she, she's the star. She's the real deal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That uh, She, hands down. I mean, everyone plays their role well. Um, the sisters can be a little hammy at times. But, I mean, yeah, she is... She's, she's the admission. Yeah. She's why you're here. She's the holds it all I'll say here. this, great locations and sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing of it ever feels like it's a movie set. No. That's true. Yeah. And it's a good looking movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's produced very well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Lair of the White Worm, uh, I can't recommend it to everybody. Um, but if, you, if you've if seen some Ken Russell movies and you've enjoyed them, or if you're you're into full core, check it out. Yeah, and if the boner police are nearby, you're going to need a lawyer. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm All so right. sorry. All right, very inappropriate. So let's go ahead and pass it to uh, Venomous Vincenzo here. Well, uh, I chose Gorgira. Uh, came out in 1954, directed by Ishiro Honda, starring the person I noted um, in terms of acting was Takashi Shimura, and that is because he was in like every good Kurosawa movie. For the most part, the rest of this cast is Godzilla-centric. They were in a ton of different things, kind of rotating around this property, but he is a big-time star. Um, And so he's the one that closes out the movie um, on the boat there. But anyways, um, I I wanted to give him a shout-out because he's in all of those like all-time great movies. Okay, cool. So going into this... I have. I obviously have recently went to the movies and seen Godzilla minus one, 
which was fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, obviously, I wasn't going to pick that. It's not even available yet. A little too new for us. But it did get me thinking that Godzilla as a property is very noticeably absent from a podcast called Midwest Monsters yeah. that's been around for a decade. Uh, I, the reason for that is I don't think anybody at this table is a huge Godzilla fan as a property. Um, obviously, it's part of the, the public lexicon and pop culture. Everyone knows what Godzilla is, but I have far from seen all of the Godzilla movies. There's a lot of them that are, especially the ones where Godzilla's son and stuff, they're just, to me, they're trash. And I know some there's people out there that are going to be very angry that I said that, but we're never going to cover this as a franchise. Like, that's just, the interest isn't there, and there are, like, what, how many, how See, that's what I was like. We watched, you, you you picked this one, and I was like, well, there goes the franchise episode. <laughs> I think the only time really it's even ever been mentioned was when we did the King Kong yeah. episode, and it was mentioned because of those two Tohos and, well, the new American stuff. Um, but there are 38 Godzilla films. Wow. Well, and let's, uh, and let's be honest. I'm not trying to throw shade here. It's There's nothing wrong with loving the property in all these movies. No. Conversationally, you're only going to get so far with so many of these movies to where you're just kind of rehashing the yes, same structure. Because, because yes, this first they're very, they're very uh, formulaic, but I think that this one especially, and then this uh, the one that's out now, <clears throat> these actually have a story to tell. These have a, a real human anchor to them. And so I just thought because of what this one launched, and this one's really special as far as the property goes because it is tackling some some greater subtext here. Oh, yeah. So I just thought, conversationally, if we're going to do Godzilla, we have to talk about this on this show. So that's that's why I picked it. Yeah. I, I was delighted you picked it. Um, I even texted Vinny, or maybe both of you, but I, I know I texted and said, I always forget how much I enjoy this movie. Spoiler alert. Um, I, I've seen a number of the Godzilla movies. I'm not crazy about it to the point where I've seen, what did you say, 38 yeah, I, I have not sniffed anywhere near watching 38 of those films. I've seen a large chunk of the original what, Showa era. Uh, is that what it is that they call it? The I'm Showa not sure. era, like the first chunk of movies. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I've seen a, a number of those. I've seen some of the the ones you're referencing, the Sun yeah. ones. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, but the, the first one is, it's the real deal. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you picked it and look forward to chatting it. I am not a, a mark for Godzilla by any means, um, but as a kid I was. So I would always check these out um, because I, I just I just thought kaiju were cool, mm-hmm. you know. And and we're off as I got older, as you said, because you know you get into some of these films, they're they're silly, and that's fine. They're supposed to be, uh, but also just repetitive. You know, we we have awoken this great monster; it's here. We can't stop it, but wait, we found something that can stop it. You know yeah. what I mean? And yep. it's it's the formula, yep. and that's fine. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, but I, too, in revisit, I probably haven't watched this since I was a kid. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Like, just the story and the story that I had to tell, the importance of it, um, the social message. Yeah, it was, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you picked it. And I think I watched it on Tubi, and 
that's the Criterion cut on Tubi. Oh, nice. So if you want to see it as, as good as you're going to see it, oh, yeah. you can watch it right there on Tubi. Very nice. Because when the credits rolled, it talked about, hey, you've just watched the Criterion restoration. I was like, oh, crap. Nice. Yeah. The story's very basic. Um, that won't take any time at all. Uh, basically, it's 1954 in Japan. They're doing underwater nuclear testing uh, bombs, and it awakens this prehistoric atomic creature that then makes its way onto land and, and terrorizes Japan. So that's that it. that's your basic that that that's your story that's the story with almost every Godzilla movie but what but with this this one being the first one you're talking about a post World War II Japan and Japan had a very unique experience during that time that uh, frankly no one else has had in its history in the history of humanity yeah. So this is a, a very uniquely Japanese story uh, because, as a result of what they went through as a people. And also I want to point out, too, before we get any further into some of the details of the storytelling and the narrative, context matters. And this is why I'm always interested in, in when we get the chance to discuss foreign films is how different storytelling is in different places of the world. So think about the movies that exist when this came out, 1954. Um, so so much of the lighthearted fluff, campy horror. I mean, even movies in general. I mean, there were s- some heavy hitters in that decade, certainly like any decade. But for the most part, it's a thriving, you know, just carefree, easy-go approach, especially to entertainment. And so I just want to make sure I remind that when we discuss some of the things that are in this that are kind of jaw-dropping yeah. for for this point in time to think about what we're consuming in America and how we consume this in America immediately after its success when it's coming out. Anyways, as, as you were, though, with... Well, and I was going to add to that, as the, the old social studies teacher in me would like to remind everybody that the bombs were dropped in 1945. This is only nine years later. Yeah. yeah. Still very fresh on a, a people's mind. Yeah. I mean... You're not a generation past. You're you. People acting in this movie remember it happening. Yeah. yeah, the direct loss and agony are still present. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I had also heard at one time that uh, this was in response to the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, which was a stop motion. I believe Harry Housen did the stop motion for that, mm-hmm. but that they didn't have the maybe the know-how or the budget in Japan at that time to replicate like the stop motion. So uh, the, another thing I really like about this is the ingenuity of how do we get this story told. It's so fantastical and on paper is a special effects nightmare. Sure. Especially if you don't have the experience doing this kind of thing or the budget. What's well, interesting too, this was um, Toho Studios and this is the same year as Seven Samurai. So they're literally pushing all their chips in. Wow. The cost of these two wow. movies. So I think when people watch this sometimes, they're like, oh, guy in the suit, cheap. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Uh, there was still a lot of money invested in this, but the stop motion, by the time they were going to be able to get that done, nobody would go see the damn movie. It was going to yeah. be so far removed. I mean, they were trying to make a statement then compared to what 
you know, the global market was consuming movie-wise, but also the story that they had to tell. Yeah. They didn't want to wait, and so that's also a necessity that comes with it. So the, the ingenuity of, okay, we'll use miniatures. We'll use a guy in a rubber suit. We'll use a hand puppet for close-ups of the head and things like that. I, just, I really admire that uh, problem-solving and the ingenuity that went into making this film as well, which is something I appreciate about, really, Godzilla as a franchise itself went back in the practical days is the miniature work because I, I mean that's painstaking to set all that up and and most of the time it looks pretty good yeah yeah oh yeah and we met we the met gentleman. we met uh, Haru Nakajima in 2017 weeks before I, I was going to say away. I wrote the dates down I looked it up we met him June 30th 2017 at Days of the Dead in Indianapolis and he passed away on August 7th so a little over a month. Yeah. And he was in this, he was Godzilla through... 13, I can't remember if it's 13 or 17 films, he was Godzilla. Yeah, that era I was referencing, that's all him. Yeah. Well, you guys went and gave him your dirty American germs. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And you killed him. Yep. We did. <clears throat> and you know, he didn't speak any English that I heard, Mm-mm. but the interaction but the, yeah, was, was still very gracious. It was all smiles, that. handshakes, hand on your shoulder, like... He was very warm. The, yeah. lang- the language barrier was not a problem. Yeah, that's another one of those, you know, meet and greets at these conventions that I have a hard time wrapping my mind around. Yeah, it's like like when we were watching this movie. That's thing, I was like, holy shit, the guy in that suit. I've, I've shaken his hand. Yeah, that's so strange. Yeah, when I met cool. him, when he was there, I remember because we were uh, Brian had his booth there, and we were at the opposite end of the room, and so every time I stood up and turned around, I could see his table back there, and I was like. Man, I have to go meet him. I was like, this is like meeting a universal monster. Yeah. And when am I ever going to have this opportunity again? And as it, well, as it would turn out, I would Wouldn't. never have that opportunity again. But yeah, it's it's cool too because the legacies there, not only in this very important movie, but so many of them. It's not like he was in one of those things where like Michael Myers that was in four scenes of a movie. Yeah. Like this guy was, was it. And shout out to him because the suit was very, very heavy and hot, like to the point where it endangered him frequently. And again, we're not going to go beat for beat through any of this because the story is very simplistic at its core. But uh, it's just the the uh, Japanese story that's kind of dealing with what nuclear technology can mean, what it, how it can affect the people, uh, the implications of it. And then, of course, you've got the destruction caused by Godzilla, which is directly caused by the atomic bombs they were they were testing underwater and so you get all of this destruction it's like godzilla's a, a physical manifestation a sentient destructive force of the atomic age yeah it's interesting too because when you're watching it especially through the lens of you know retroactively now it, it feels like a blending of a cautionary tale but also a statement you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's it's they masterfully do it um, in the way that it just kind of it's just kind of interwoven throughout the film where it's like you know you could awaken it's not done you could awaken the beast so it's like we've already went through it but you guys have created something that we have to worry about forever and and really that's where they are working on that is you have the scientist who has come up with this invention that what is it like basically zap turns the oxygen weaponizes oxygen mm-hmm. 
and he refuses to let it he's going to destroy his work because if this falls into the wrong hands it could be the destruction of humanity it's an ethical dilemma but on the other hand this is the only thing that they believe that can be used to destroy Godzilla if I may at one point they say Godzilla has been baptized in the flames of the H-bomb what could kill him now I mean that's a lot of thought went into that line. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that and so to then get to into this ethical dilemma about yeah. this is the only thing that can stop him. But if you use it, are other people going to try to replicate this to use against humans? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if we want to talk about the ending of it or not. I don't want I, I don't want to give it away even though it's well, from right. 54 or whatever, but uh we give everything away. He uh the doctor, they end up having to go like underwater in, in those old school sc- SpongeBob SquarePants scuba suits. Uh, and they go down, and old boy uh, decides he's destroyed all of his records, and it only exists in his brain now. And he's just going to stay there at the bottom, and he's going to detonate the thing while he's holding it. Which they would revisit in Godzilla King of the Monsters with uh, Vera Farmiga's character. And that she sacrifices herself, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> to to stop Mothra. Yeah. Yeah. And also I, I I think while we're talking about this movie, you can't you have to mention the American counterpart that was oh, without question. made from this film. Where they got a what's some the, irony there. What's the Perry Mason actor's <clears throat> name? Raymond Burr. Raymond Burr. Uh, so rather than just overdub the movie and release it in the states. They take the movie, shoot a bunch of scenes with Raymond Burr, and basically just insert him, cut things out of the original movie, and insert Raymond Burr in to uh, run the narrative of the story and uh, sanitize a bit of what the message of the movie is. Sure, I, I hope if nothing else that us covering this can deter people from watching that one yeah and watch the original yeah now, watch the american one after it, it's interesting to see what sure. occurred but it's it's kind of disgraceful to be perfectly honest like yeah the original's good you don't need an americanized version and the fact that they cut out elements of suffering mm-hmm. to incorporate the american mm-hmm. to make it more digestible for us uh-huh it's gross like, and I'm not trying to be self-righteous about this, but I mean, it, it is blatant, blatantly just kind of nauseating. It, it's, it is, uh, yeah, it's it definitely whitewashed. Yeah. Uh, I'd recommend this film. 100%. <laughs> yeah, this, it, it was, it was a pleasant surprise to sit and watch it, um, and just kind of revisit the joy that I had in my childhood watching these movies, but also to, to realize just how heartfelt this movie is. It actually had something to say. It yeah. wasn't just a, a slobber knocker between two big monsters, which is fine. Yeah. Sometimes like, you want that. Yes. But to see the roots of this thing and to see that this had some real emotion and a real story to tell behind it is just it's amazing. One line that punched me in the gut and then one fun thing I'll spring on you guys. But one line that punched me in the gut is that mom with her kids and I've got a note to coming to town. It. Yep. And she says don't worry, kids. We'll be with Daddy soon. You can see your father soon. Yeah. And then specifies heaven. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, oh, shit. Their dad probably died in the war. 
and this is going to be so present in the mind of every Japanese person watching this for the first time. Yeah. And, and, and moments like that are cut out for Raymond Burr. That's why it's so gross. Ugh. Like, not necessarily that particular scene, but scenes of suffering, yeah. which is such a huge component <clears throat> of this movie that makes it so powerful. Um, sorry, did you have any, any other... Oh, the other thing I was going to spring on you is that... Uh, surprise, surprise. It's not just a creature feature. It's not just a big monster movie. When they're doing the ancient exorcism ritual to get rid of Godzilla. I said, aha! Mark it under full core. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, right? I mean, he's been part of their folklore. Not in the way, it's not in the way that we normally think of it, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, just some things to note. This is the 70th anniversary. It is the longest running franchise of all time. Um, and that's not, uh, shout out to Toddy, uh, debatable timelines or anything like that. It's just literally... They've constantly been making things with this property for 70 years. Yeah, wow. Um, it has a great score, uh, much of which it was used repeatedly um, through future movies. Um, it's just a really, it's deceptively powerful um, for somebody going into it for the first time who knows Godzilla as the ridiculously fun property. And then you go in and there's just this this potency to it that's like a sobering allegory. But at the same time, any of its shortcomings, which are few, but like for instance, let's be honest, Godzilla's arrival in cinema kind of derpy. When when he <laughs> pops over the hill, like the build up to it's awesome, mm-hmm. and then they show him and he's like, oh, there, there, there. it's just like, oh, but but the way everybody is in it and sells it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And um, one thing that I had heard mentioned that I hadn't thought about when I was watching the film, but I thought was very interesting, was that the footsteps are like bombs closing in. Mm. And I hadn't just I hadn't really thought about that, but it's you know people are hearing it, yeah, and it's terrifying, and they're waiting for it to get to them too. Um, what a fantastic movie! I'm really glad you picked yeah. it. I, I hope that we can kind of inspire people maybe who wouldn't give it a chance because it's a little bit older or because they they think they know Godzilla. Right. Hopefully, we can inspire some people. To and I out. and also I don't want to get into it to any depth whatsoever, but I do want to implore people because I've heard that they're getting ready to. Uh, bring Godzilla minus zero back into the theater in black and white for a run because oh. it did so well. If you have an opportunity to go see that in the theater, go see that in the theater. It has all of what we have praised about this film and it in it and that one. Uh, there's very this one takes place right after World War II. Mm. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet and. Which is rarely the case with Godzilla. The the people, the humans, have you totally invested in this movie. Oh, cool. Like, you, you are very invested in them as characters. And the love and care that you can tell that these filmmakers put into this movie, especially with the budget they had that is minuscule compared to what the U.S., would have spent on a movie because they would have spent the money on a lead actor and, yeah. and had the budget that they had for their entire movie. But Godzilla looks fantastic in this new one. Like, can't tell you enough. If you have an opportunity when it when it comes back around, if it comes around your area, go see Godzilla minus zero in the theater. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thanks again. Yeah, man. Good times. Glad everybody liked it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Rounding it out here. If 
final film. What do we got, Professor? The Wolf of Snow Hollow from 2020. This is written and directed and starring Jim Cummings. Also starring Ricky Lindholm and Robert Forster in his last role. Um, this is a movie I picked because two reasons. One, I enjoyed it when it came out and it didn't get a lot of attention. Um, and also I think it's an interesting examination on how to make an independent movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys have any history with this? Number one, I was going to say, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, that's why we saved it for last. One of the reasons, go ahead and shut the podcast off now. If you don't want it spoiled for you, cause we will spoil it. Uh, this is my first time. I've been wanting to watch it for a while. Uh, you gave me the excuse to watch it. They took it off of streaming. Yes. You gave me the excuse to watch it. Uh, but, um, I enjoyed it. There's some complaints. But I enjoyed it. I had never seen it before. I don't know that I even knew it existed. Um, I watched it, and I did enjoy it. I, I did think... I'll get into more on why sure. as we get into it. But I did like it. Just a spoiler there for you. Cool. So uh, the movie opens. It's kind of got a cold open with a couple at a cabin. Um, the, they show the guy being a complete prick at dinner to a couple of local guys. Um, you're kind of setting the table for uh, potential suspects. Uh, you know, Spoiler alert, right off the bat, this movie is kind of going through the, the structure of serial killer in a small town. Yeah. Um, and so, but at the same time, we head back to the cabin that they're at. He's going to propose. We see the ring that he's got. Um, they're in the hot tub. And when they're done there, he showers... And while he showers, she is eviscerated outside. Um, And one of the things that I really love about this movie, and it even struck me with the first viewing, is this is a rare modern example of where they assume the viewer is smart. They do not spend time spelling things out for you. And if you rewatch it, you pick up on some of that even more. So we immediately jump into an AA meeting with our main character, John, who works at the sheriff's office. And I, this is one of my favorite things right out of the gate. He's doing the meeting, and he says, I don't hear anything. Which indicates to him the whole office in the same building, his, the sheriff's crew, is gone. What's going on? And I didn't even pick up on that the first time I watched it. But there's just little things like that where it just moves. Because this is a, I don't even think, it's it's like right around 90 minutes. Oh, it's it, the runtime is tight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so just to kind of clue you in that we don't spend a lot of time dwelling on anything. It just moves. Um, so we then immediately jump to the crime scene at the cabin that we opened the movie with, uh, where we are introduced to our sheriff trio, the main character I mentioned, played by Jim Cummings, Jim or John Marshall, Detective Julia, who's played by Ricky Lindholm, and then uh, Sheriff Had- Hadley, who is played by Robert Forster in his last role. Um, it's got great mood and environment it's constantly snowy or you know snowing uh, like the crime scene they are pretty masterful with the way that they approach the gore like they'll show it from 10 feet away just to get your attention yeah. but they clearly don't have the budget to do some crazy shit on screen right um but you kind of lean into the typical tropes that you have with a crime scene there and getting to know the characters um Thoughts at this point, just early in the movie, as it's kind of unfolding with with the environment and and I was when it starts, you can you get the the you can tell immediately that it's not got the biggest budget, just by the uh, I don't even say film stock, it's probably digital, but I don't know. Sure. 
but it just has that look. But I'm very quickly surprised by their camera work and by the acting. The acting really kind of surprised me. And, and even as it gets further into it, I'm more surprised for a movie that I thought was going to be a lot more low-budget feeling. Sure. That the acting was as good as it was. I was like, oh, okay, all right. Like, they, they put some effort in. Yeah. So that's my initial take. Because when I first saw it, I was like, oh, boy. It's going to be a low-budget werewolf movie. <laughs> yeah. But quickly kind of make me forget about that. Cool. That's interesting. Uh because it was half and half for me. I thought some people were good uh, in their roles, and then I thought some people were really distracting in their mm. roles as far as the acting goes. But exactly what you said, the direction, the cinematography, it catches you early on. You know that's something of value. Yeah. Right. And I only ask a little earlier than <clears throat> usual because I can vividly remember watching this the first time and just getting nerdy as shit. I was like, oh my god, this might be a werewolf movie. It's a winter movie. Like, it's just checking all these boxes sure. that I'm enjoying watching. So, um, the next segment we go to is a ski instructor where we show her leading her little group hillside. And then um, there's these weird stares that she's having back at the camera. Yeah. And again, it's a very clever, cheap way. To start building the mystery of we got something going on locally, we're not going to show our hand at all. They have to spend no money, and it's also honestly a little jolting with having her stare at the camera, like what in the hell is she looking at? Um, which then leads to her being attacked, and so now we've quickly put together that our camera work is going to even clue us in um, to you know this whoever this was was right out in the open, so what's she already scared of now it starts to add some questions to it at the same time we then start getting to know our main character john um he's having custody woes and that whole situation with with his daughter he's also having general struggles as a father with her which are certainly on display and i know is one of the larger complaints of the movie a little bit later with a particular scene um he's also struggling with sobriety uh, which is always an interesting parallel to think about with werewolves. Oh, and his, that's and his dad. Yeah. As, and that too. His, yeah. his, has fail, his ailing health. Yep. And his overall anger issues. Anger issues and now a very serious local mounting case and pressure from it. And so they quickly lay down all of these things that kind of, that kind of lay out the story for him. But at the same time, we keep navigating between him and the case. Uh, our, Third situation is a young mother at a diner. She has interactions with somebody sitting down at the table with her. Um, the conversation gets kind of strange. She removes herself from the situation. Then we show her talking to police about the situation. So at this point, we know the descriptions are starting starting to be uh, mentioned and put out there. Um, and she's kind of trivialized because there's so many people wanting to talk to the police and give, hey, I think, hey, my neighbor behind me weird dude man you ought to keep an eye on him yeah and so it's gonna fall through the cracks but it also informs the viewer that like hey there's some valid information being relayed here because she has then attacked her car yeah um and so this way we're we're informing how detectives at least have some descriptions of the actual situation at this point or at least we think two things about that one 
it's interesting that she's got a red bow in her hair. Kind of mm-hmm. gives Red Riding Hood vibes. Yes. And she's got big, like, eyes. Like, mm-hmm. like, just very big, blue, beautiful eyes. And it's like, oh, my, what big eyes you have. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I got that vibe from it. But that scene where she looks back from the deer. Cause, so there's a deer in the road. Oh, yes. That makes her yep. stop. When she looks back, because her daughter is still in the car, when she looks back at the car and the wolf is just standing there, it's startling. Yeah, like, I was going to say, we need to get ooh, into her attack. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, like, oh, okay. Oh, no, I don't like this. The wolf is by the car where the kid is. Don't like that. Thoughts on that? It's a... They, again, the choices that were made by not showing you their monster... They're giving you glimpses of their monster, and so I way more effective than if you would have would have would have gotten a good look at it. She actually fires off some shots at it, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the most disturbing thing. Uh, do we want to get to that funeral? Sure. Yeah, is sure. They're at her funeral, and of course, the cop, our main character, is going to every funeral, and uh, he's sitting there and and increasingly becoming more. Anxious, agitated, with because the pressure just keeps mounting from every direction for this man in his life. And then it pans over, and there is a second, smaller coffin where the child was killed as well. And once you get to that, you're like, oh, oh shit. Like, for all of the levity and some of the dialogue and some of the... And that's another thing. The humor is written well, too, and acted well. So this movie's got a nice balance to it. But when you see that, you're like, oh, shit, we're going here? Yeah. And when you can tell he's having fun with the writing, where he refuses to let you settle. Yeah. The minute you think that you've got this movie pinpointed, then it, it jumps back and forth. In, in a pretty effective way. Like, you don't feel like you're being manipulated like you do with some movies. Mm-hmm. Um, man, that's a tough scene, though. Yeah. Like, when we're at the funeral, I'm like, whatever, it's another funeral. And then they pan over, and I was like, oh, don't like that. Yeah. Don't like that. Okay. Um, it only gets worse um, <laughs> in terms of, of dark times. Our character, John, uh, chugs some mouthwash with alcohol in it. Yeah, and my wife goes, why is he doing that? I'm like, Think about it for a minute. Yeah. So, some alcoholics. They get hard if that's up. all that's in their house. Mm-hmm. She, oh, no. <laughs> I said, yes. Oh, no, indeed. A very memorable scene with him going right through the oven door. Yeah. Yeah. Which, for a movie, like, you can tell that that was a scene that he'd storyboarded probably before the rest of the story existed. Yeah. Because they avoid so many situations that are going to be expensive, and then they've got this very elaborate spot to get your attention with with yeah. him falling apart. It's effective, though. So, um, I do want to pause here really quickly. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to say that um, th- these these scenes where he's falling off the wagon mm-hmm. are, are, I think, some of his most sincere moments in the film. Yes. Some of his acting early on in the film, and like him just overly angry, and he just, he just seems a little overly hammy, like, it took me out of the film a little bit. Um uh, again, I like the direction. I like I like the storytelling. I think he did a great job in all of that. But I'm just like I don't know if you need to be in your movies, buddy. You can you can write and direct and do all that. That's fair. Yeah. I, I think some people are going to feel that way and agree with you. For me, he's more of a Fargo brand. Yeah. Like where 
he can do the serious and get into it, but he can also make me laugh. Yeah. Um, and so I, I totally get it. And sure. I, I knew that that's that along with, uh, one other element of the story might be something that's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is important, important to point out with, um, his approach and what he's doing on screen. Cause it can be a little much early on, especially it's at this point when like, especially when he falls through the oven door, that's when he becomes a sympathetic character to me. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm, I'd be doing a disservice here if I didn't point out that I laughed out loud, <laughs> multiple times at him when he slaps the coroner when they're debating <laughs> oh, yeah. what's going on and he loses his cool and slaps him laughed out loud and also um in the library yeah when he wakes him up and he scares the shit out of him i it just tickles me next time you got a cop in here investigating spooky stuff and they tell you to pull all the spooky books off the shelf maybe don't sneak up on him it's not me it's one of my guys it might be a shooting yeah <laughs> like that was pretty good. <laughs> but I will say, I do think that when he gets into some pretty serious moments that he handles it just fine. I yeah. think so, too. Yeah. Um, so, after things have elevated with him personally, um, his father then turns to retirement. He's being hospitalized. He's having heart murmur and other issues with his health. Uh, after clearly many years, which, by the way, they don't spend a lot of time on, but they inform you quickly on their relationship that he's been trying to get him to go take care of himself. Yeah. Um, that's that's one of the things I love about this movie. It just does not waste time on that shit. It just goes, put it together, we're moving. Yeah. And so a fun part, before he gets hospitalized, uh, they're, they're all gathering together. This is going to be the big night of the hunt. They're going to find the wolf. And um, uh, I like when they're all getting ready to go out, and the dad, as the sheriff, says, all right, gather around, gather around. I won't ask you to pray because of the goddamn lawyers. <laughs> but if we could have a moment of silence. <laughs> and this Lark character, this red herring that we keep getting small glimpses of, this kind of wild-looking guy living in a trailer, smoking meth, shooting up heroin. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help Where it. is the laptop? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> I just took everybody out of it. I'm sorry, I'm rebooting. Bring it back up. Um, that was good. Sometimes you just got to throw the dart. Um, but yeah, so there's that kind of critical turning point uh, with our main character where he is drinking again, but we also quickly, you know, mention the father and his situation, but he's also still doing the funny stuff here and there where it's appropriate, where it's going to kind of keep the movie from being miserable because <laughs> it just keeps getting darker and darker. But he breaks it up at these perfect uh, points through the movie to yeah. just keep you at least kind of on the journey and having a good time. But then uh, we get to his daughter who is hooking up with a boy in the car um, and the wolf arrives and it is smacking around the car and you think at this point, not sure what's going to happen. Uh, we've got a neighbor with that great scene who's referencing what's going on to him before they know it happens yeah. from up in their house. They're like yeah. pointing, which is always that jolting moment for the movie. It's like, what do they know that, that we don't? Um, but it's pretty effective with the smashing into the window and you kind of think, Oh shit, we're getting ready to, we're getting ready to do this in, in the car. Um, but dad arrives they call the police. He's there with a shotgun, um, and he just starts unloading. The boyfriend bolts. She's there in her underwear. The wolf runs off. 
Uh, we have a fellow officer, which I think is the one earlier in the movie he yells at mm-hmm. to come over and look at the deer, which is a pretty entertaining scene, to be honest. But this guy's folded up in the trash can when they find him. Uh, he He's just been killed. And then the daughter, uh, and my, my, my dad watched this um, just because we were covering on the podcast. He's like, oh, I want to check it out. He likes werewolf movies. And that this was his biggest complaint. He goes, are you kidding me? He's like, I don't care what he's done as a father. He just saved her life. And her choice, when the boyfriend bolts, leaves her there, is to then berate him in the street in her underwear when she's just been caught breaking all of these rules. And he even said, he goes, I looked online. It pissed other people off, too. It's ridiculous. (laughs) I I, I agree. The scene's a little unnecessary. We get it. He hadn't been the best dad. Kind of ill-timed with the placement of that. Yeah. Uh, Thoughts on that scene? I also think... The way he goes off on her, instead of asking if she's okay, like, he's not really checking on her, seeing if she's okay. Yeah, because up until this point, he hasn't come off like a father who doesn't care. Right. Right. Like, yeah, he's an ex-husband who, who his, they play the ex-wife, she's like Skylar from, <laughs> from Breaking Bad, yeah. like, you're, 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 you don't like her, uh, but he seems to be have a decent relationship with his daughter up until this point and so when the venom comes out but he's pissed that I'm kind of surprised him. by it yeah but I'm kind of yeah the whole scene's kind of kind of odd that way but that wolf in those scenes pretty yeah. cool looks fucking great but I will say on the flip side it also goes back to what I'm celebrating which is the quick storytelling yes. the efficiency yeah. you tell a lot in that scene that he's clearly worried about the custody struggles and and the permissions that he has with her, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, thoughts on the 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 after effect with the officer folded up in that trash can? It's pretty gruesome. Yeah, yeah it catches your attention. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's just jump into the end here. Um, things progress. We get him getting banned from AA. He's losing his temper there. Um, we've got the. Uh, father passing we've got basically the the guy that you referenced that's living out of the trailer he's passed on he's dead and they assume he's OD'd, it's him right? yeah he's yeah. od'd they assume he was the killer yep and so they're pinning it all on him because didn't they find because it shows him burning a body at one point yeah which there's a body on his property yeah and so they get that and they're like that's our guy and they're like and what that corner say uh a, a I'm fifth, going to the press. A fifth, a, and a fifth grader could have solved this. Yeah. It's half a mile away from the first crime scene. Yep. It is interesting, though. My wife made a point that I didn't think of, and maybe you guys didn't either, but he's got like a, a kind of a wolf mixed breed dog. Mm-hmm. He's got a wolf mm-hmm. tribal tattoo. Mm-hmm. My wife says, what if he was a werewolf hunter? And he was hmm. like out here thinking he was tracking a werewolf. Hmm. It's a fun twist. I actually what a twist. wouldn't mind a sequel. <laughs> Call back there. Let's get this guy. That would be fun. Prequel story. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, we uh, we have that kind of getting pinned on him, which then closes the case. Um, and we've got the uh, former, or the evidence being distributed to family members, uh, which then sets out kind of, and it, and it reminds me of Silver Bullet, but in a different way, where she's going out in the small town, oh, collecting yeah. bottles, trying to get a feel um, and and he's just he's just you know returning this stuff and there's some some really just kind of bleak scenes especially when the rattle lands on the porch yeah because um, I mean she spits in his face 
he's just spent. He just chucks the shit on the on the porch, and and it's just there's a lot in that scene. Again, efficient storytelling. There's just not a lot of time spent on it. There's no drawn out argument with him. She spits in the face. The stuff's heaved. Um, so we also go back to the guy from the very beginning who calls and mentions uh, to the detective Julia that they left a seam ripper when they visited. At the same time, we've got John still returning these things and he is visiting the taxidermist. She puts together, we didn't leave that. Right. And earlier when John was looking at the books, when he fell asleep in the library, he was looking at books on taxidermy as well as werewolf. And we get a very vivid illustration of a seam ripper. Yes. And so you kind of have this really entertaining and suspenseful buildup where you kind of quickly put together like, oh shit, we're about to get more here. Um, and so we, we get to this guy, Paul's house, um, and he just looks through the doorway. He's talking to him and he basically invites him in. They end up in the kitchen, but he goes ahead of him and he's sitting at the table. And uh, during their interaction, you know, they're talking about just the situation at hand and what he's been through and, and the case and all that. And then he asks about how his daughter's doing, which is what clues him off. Which I'll be honest, the first time I watched this, I struggled with putting together. Mm-hmm. Like I actually rewound it. I was like, what did I miss here? Um, and I, I put it together, but he was asking about the condition of his daughter, which wasn't a big story in the community Yeah, because he'd arrived on the scene. And, and so it, for him to know that, but it's like the Columbo. He doesn't realize till he walks back. Yeah. He's leaving after he's dropped off this evidence and he's walking out and he's interacting at the door and, um, he, he's got that great interaction where he turns back around and he says, hey, could you stand to your full height for me? Which then calls back to the information that they were getting from the girl yeah. uh, during the uh, interactions where they're getting the information from. And he just, he gets that expression on his face and he just just stretches up to the top of the doorway because this son of, a, <laughs> son of a bitch is huge. And then you realize throughout that he had been uh, placing himself in the kitchen where his height wasn't an issue why they're interacting, like he's able to reach for the drinks Uh that he's making him and everything, Uh, which then leads to him fleeing, and uh, the other officer arrives, and we get a shootout in the woods. Well, not only is he fleeing. Oh, yeah, he gets into costume. You see him, he's made a werewolf costume. He's wearing everything but the the hat, the face, basically. Which then I appreciated it the first time I watched this. After he guts our our man, like, Stabs him and lifts him up, Michael Myers style. Got him above his head. Yeah. Um, And so we really have kind of the showdown unfolding in a major way. And I can remember at the time being like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. I feel like I've been tricked. And then I thought, no, I haven't. Everything that they showed me adds up, which then excited me. Um, It's not going to be for everybody. But uh, also at the same time, during their last interaction, I want to point out that the boyfriend from the opening had mentioned, when you get him, don't arrest him. Shoot him. Kill him, shoot him in the face. Shoot him till you can see the ground. Yep. Um, and, and so, he, and he does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, without going tit for tat on every little detail, we then end up in the woods behind his house. There's a great scene when he flees out of the house. And another thing I've, I failed to mention here is the moon is huge throughout this movie. It's very moody, almost cartoonish. Uh, but you got him in the moonlight looking 
both directions and then just darting out there. Uh, he It ends with them and the other officer, Julia, arriving, helping, and then him just unloading into his face right out there in the woods. Oh, yeah. And uh, we've got our answer on our uh, local werewolf, and then the movie closes with him getting the daughter to college, and clearly he's overcome his anger issues because as he's walking out, they make remarks about the guys passing by yeah about the gym fresh meat for the new gymnast coming in that's what his daughter's there for and he just moves on this is after leaving condoms and yeah when he did that i went new year new me my man (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh what was i know you referenced uh hang-ups Oh, just that, just 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 the acting. acting. Gotcha. I didn't know. I was I was curious how the ending would treat you. Oh no, I loved it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I love the ending. Because I was I I, with with Grizz here. I know he doesn't like having the rug pulled out from underneath him, but I was like, but it's taxidermy. Yeah, related. (laughs) So it might be okay. No, I liked it. Um, Cool. I, I thought it was really cool because, and that's only because he was convincing as a werewolf through the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like yeah, he, especially because of his size and the suit and everything. Like, no, I I was sold that it was a werewolf, and and I didn't. I can't say I saw the twist coming because we've had other movies where someone's pretending to be a wolf, right? right. Not a bunch, but a handful. Right. And and I thought that could be a possibility, and I'd be okay with that because this is more of a whodunit movie that has a werewolf and a thing. cop drama. Yeah. A yeah. true, almost not a true crime, but you know, like a like you say, like a Columbo type of thing. Yeah. And I and I especially right now with the way the weather is, uh, it, it was a great winter I was, winter watch. With I've been sitting on this everywhere. one. I've been excited yeah. to cover it, and I was like, okay, January, let's do this. Yeah, it, weather was perfect to watch this film. Yeah. And it's it's by no means a perfect movie. It's not going to be for everybody, but this is way too good for how little it was talked about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, this agree. was not on a lot of radars, and that's why I love doing the podcast. I like getting movies like this out here. Uh, I want to point out, I do love the parallels uh, finally put on screen in a more meaningful way with alcoholism mm-hmm. and werewolf mm-hmm. kind of lore. Yeah. Um, it's something that we always tap into and talk about, but I feel like this did it without hitting you over the head with it. Uh, also something funny, when I described this movie initially, when I first saw it, I thought of it as Fargo and Silver Bullet. Mm-hmm. I, I listened to Cummings say on uh, one of the special features of the Blu-ray, he talked about it. He goes, I wanted to do Zodiac and Danny McBride. <laughs> and it kind of made sense. Sure. So I thought that was a funny combo worth mentioning um, yeah. from him. But yeah, this is just, this is how to do an indie movie. The, yeah. it, it covers every uh, angle that's expensive and makes it not matter. Yeah. I mean, it helps when you have Robert Forster right. in the movie. Uh, which is a, a fun final role for him. But. They excelled in the areas that a lot of low-budget movies fail miserably in, and that's lighting, uh, cinematography, and sound. Those are the yeah. three things that will make your low-budget movie look like shit if you don't do them right. They're going to look low-budget. Yeah. They did a very good job of doing those things well to where anything else that might uh, tip their hand that it's low-budget is forgettable. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I enjoyed it, so I'd, I'd recommend it. Awesome. Yeah, if you like serial killer movies, winter movies, werewolf movies, there's a lot of things yeah. going on here that I think it could be an enjoyable, enjoyable movie for people. Yeah, for sure. All right, good deal. Well, we're wrapping up another episode of The Monster Mash. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I've been joined by... Professor Wagstaff. Venomous Vinny. Stay scary, my friends. Stay scary, my friends.